Tonight, shoplifting is surging in New York City, forcing retailers to lock up everyday items behind plastic. How what we buy, from our morning coffee to what's in our Amazon shopping cart, could be fueling this problem. And a former shoplifter takes us inside the crime rings that are turning those with addictions into retail thieves. Metro Focus starts right now. This is Metro Focus with Rafael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III, Philemon M. D'Agostino Foundation, the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Rafael P. Roman. No doubt you've noticed that almost every item at your local pharmacy seems to be locked behind plastic cases these days. And no doubt you know that that's because of the sharp increase in shoplifting we've been experiencing in New York City over the past three years. In fact, according to the NYPD, there has been a 66% increase in reports of retail theft here since 2019, costing stores hundreds of millions of dollars a year. What you may not be aware of, however, is that a majority of these incidents have not been committed by kids just stealing stuff for kicks, nor by desperately poor parents trying to acquire basic necessities for their families. Instead, through detailed reporting, we are beginning to understand that shoplifting is often part of a larger organized crime ring in which people known as boosters steal items from stores and sell them to others known as fences. Who are these boosters and fences? And when all is said and done, who ends up with a lion's share of the profits from the purloined booty? Joining us now to answer these and other questions are James Walsh, a writer for New York Magazine who's been covering this topic, Dennis Gibares, a former drug user who engaged in boosting and is currently a peer counselor in training, and Talia Carney, a senior trial attorney for the New York County Defender Services, who is representing Mr. Gibares. Thank you all for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you here with us. So, James, I should say that the reason we're doing this piece is because of a long piece that you wrote for uh, New York Magazine's Curbed online. Uh, it's a wonderful long magazine. It covers this topic a lot more than we can do here. So and I recommend our viewers uh, to take a look at it. Uh, but in any event, James, let's start by defining the terms I mentioned in the introduction. What exactly is a booster and what is a fence? Sure. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, a booster is uh, what we might consider a quote unquote professional shoplifter. It's, it's somebody who is stealing not out of need. Uh, it's, it's not your typical sort of kleptomaniac stealing uh, as a compulsion. It's not um, uh, your teenager who is stealing uh, a candy bar. It's somebody uh, who's stealing with the intent of reselling to, to, to get some, you know, some, some sort of income. Uh, and they're often stealing to fences. And that's the uh, person who is, goes between the consumer uh, or perhaps another fence and the booster. So it's, it's really the middleman. Well, you know, as, uh, as, you, as I said and as you said, I think a lot of people still believe that this shoplifting is being done by, by kids, you know, out in the lark, or as at least one of our elected officials said, by 
by desperately poor parents who are just trying to get the basic necessities for their families, um, like baby formula. Uh, but that is not the reality. So, so elaborate on, on who these boosters are. You know, well, I will say the, the, taxon the taxonomy of sort of shoplifters in general is quite large. Uh, and there's a pretty wide range and, and kind of we in the media have flattened it, I would say, um, to, to, you know, boosters get lumped in with with um, teenage shoplifters who get lumped in with smash and grabs. Often we'll use the term shop shoplifting for um, pretty serious crimes of robbery and, and, and smash and grabs that, that are, are very different. Um, that being said, um, the a lot of the people I spoke to uh, have claimed that over the past two decades, this this problem of quote of organized uh, retail theft has really been on the rise, and that, that's that's what we're talking about when we're talking about boosters who are kind of, um, for lack of a better term, reporting to fences. Uh, a fence is sitting atop um, a kind of a crew of, of boosters and drug use. Uh, as as you're right, drug use uh, has a lot to it's underlies a lot of this a, a lot of this new problem. Um, some of the boosters, many of the boosters, are stealing because of the desperate need that they have because of their addiction. And and, and uh, uh, Dennis, let me go to you. Um, as I said, you were uh, a drug user. Um, is that what led you to boosting? Tell us tell us what led you to that. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, well. Uh... I never uh, had a criminal record before um, graduated from college uh, in my later 20s, uh, got an injury and was addicted to opioids and uh, maintained work and everything. And as my addiction got worse, um, I ended up not able to sustain employment and uh, a number of things have occurred and led to me being homeless and just my drug use spiraled out of control and I had no other way to, I guess, maintain my, uh, how do you call it? Just maintain my, my use, my, my tolerance had gotten high at that point and I had no, no means. So basically became desperate and decided to try pretty much anything. Yeah. 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 Sometimes when people talk about this thing, they forget that the human, the humanity behind what it's all about. Uh, take us through a day when you were boosting how did the day how did they go i mean you know i mean did you how did you pick your target stores how did you decide what to take um how how often did you boost let's say in a week um i guess uh for me a day would be um i wake up and uh immediately having withdrawal symptoms so uh if i hadn't if i had no money basically i would try to pick the location Basically, that was just closest to me that I could get to by a nearby train station or something like that, that I could just go in and in and out quickly, you know, not disturb anybody. Uh, obviously, you're disturbing people by doing that. But I just tried to pick a spot that I could get in, get out and get back to get to uh, to get to somebody to sell it to. That way I can get my uh, get my withdrawal symptoms taken away and not be not be sick. So. Uh, yeah, just hop on the train, uh, go to the nearest location that would seem like it'd be, you know, whatever's quick. It's hard to, it's hard to, you know, there's no rationalization at that point when you're doing those type of things, but you're just, you're so desperate and in such need of, of, uh, you know, your, your, your symptoms to be cured. So you pretty much do whatever, whatever you can to obtain that drug. 
and, and tell us if you would, if you can, you know, what kind of emotional and psychological uh, toll did this boosting that accompanied your your drug addiction take on you? Oh, it's terrible. I mean, you know, you're already at the lowest point. You, well, for me, I was already at the lowest point I had ever been in my life. So uh, when I'm going in there and sometimes you may hear the workers telling you, hey, stop or cut it out or I'm going to call the police and stuff like that. But I didn't want to become confrontational, confrontational with any of those people. I understood that those were good, hardworking people just doing their jobs. And I know that if it weren't for my sickness, that I would not be in that situation that I was in. But I was there. So every time I, I did it, by the time I'm I'm out the store and I'm on the way to to try to fence these items off. Uh, I just start feeling terrible. I feel like worthless. I feel like uh, like at the lowest, like just a low human being. And uh, knowing that that's not who I was really kind of really bothered me. But I had became that that person for that time being. So it's just, uh, you know, I know what I was doing was wrong. At the same time, I kind of feel like I can't stop because it's the only way. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it takes a toll. It takes it takes a huge toll on me. Uh, to this day, I, I regret those actions and yeah. and still deal with the depression from doing those type of things and stuff. But yeah. but while I'm in it, I'm in it. Uh, you get a you sort of get a a little bit of a rush because you you know you you know you're doing something illegal, so the adrenaline kicks in and you know that you could potentially get caught and and stuff like that, and you probably will because uh you know there's technology nowadays where they have facial recognition and things like that, but um. Yeah, so I it's just it's just a, a terrible feeling, and after the rush dies down, you you just feel I would feel worthless and just you know like like I have to do this and depressed and angry at myself. Yeah. You know, Talia, something that I think that you try to emphasize and convey when you spoke to James uh, for the article uh, is that the reality of an addicted booster is no less desperate uh, than the desperation that may be felt by a, a very uh, uh, desperate family looking for basic necessities. Um, I mean, there's other things that you talked about that we will talk about here, but I, I think that was something that you want, wanted to underscore. Am I right? You're absolutely right. And I want to thank you for having us here and mm -hmm. for hearing our story and listening to a public defender and a public defender's client. Uh, we don't usually get to, to, <laughs> to share our stories and our clients' stories. Um, and one one thing I would like to underscore particularly is that I remember very well when I first met Dennis. And typically when a public defender meets most of their clients, they are at their lowest point. So when I first met Dennis, I remember very well what he looked like um, and his demeanor and that it was very difficult for him to raise his head from the um, table between the the um, our interviewing area, we don't get to sit with somebody. You know, we have a, like a bar between us, mm. and he was at his lowest point. And I've known Dennis now for several years, right? Um, about three years. About three years. Four years going on. And to look and talk and be with Dennis, um, it, you know, th this is a person who was sick, and now, as you can see, he's well, <laughs> and so. I, I, you know, I, I think that that is 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 the most important thing that we need to understand about the people that are at Rikers Island that are are, are called bad people. They are not bad people, um, and and so I would like to underscore that. Yeah. So we'll we'll talk about some of the other things that you that you brought up in in the article. But James, uh, in that article, uh, you write. Uh, 
this about uh, the shoplifting spree that we're experiencing. Quote, whether the crisis is real or the continuation of a long-standing trend remains up for debate. Now, that surprised me. Um, do you have some doubts about the NYPD statistics about uh, the, 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 the boosting going up 66% uh, over the last three years? And, and, and statistics aside, you know, as the great bard sang, you don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind blows. You know, I've lived in New York for over 40 years, but it was only last year that I saw a boosting in progress. And I know other people who have had that same experience. Um, is there any doubt that this is something new? Well, this is this is a national conversation. I think I was writing um, generally about that uh, national trend. I'm not necessarily questioning NYPD statistics. Um, I think it's undeniable that, as you say, shoplifting to the average person, the average con consumer seems more prevalent than it ever has been. We see it on the nightly news constantly. Um, and, you know, I spoke with one police officer in Ohio who kind of chalked that all up to the proliferation of cell phone cameras. He said, this is the, I see the same amount of boosting and, and shoplifting as I did in the nineties. So really what we're looking at is, is uh, statistics. And uh, as I said, statistically speaking, it's, it's incredibly hard to understand the scope of the problem. Um, the FBI's numbers are not really helpful. Uh, and, and shoplifting is actually an underreported crime. Uh, many large retailers uh, have policies against calling the police uh, when employees witness a shoplifting. So um, we're really left with um, a narrative that's driven largely by retailers who are the ones saying, you know, here's how much we've lost due to shoplifting. Um, and, and we kind of take those numbers on faith in the media often, which, you know, if you look closely, um, even sometimes executives get it wrong. Uh, the, the CFO of Walgreens uh, last year started the year on an investor call saying that shoplifting was out of control. Professional boosters were out of control and it was really hurting their bottom line. This is, of course, is the company that um, owns uh, Dwayne Reed. Uh, and then uh, at the end of the year last year, at the beginning of this year, on that same sort of investors call, he said, we kind of cried wolf on, on shoplifting. I think we went a little bit too hard on it. Um, so uh, you know, there's not a lot of great data for us to understand the real scope of the problem. But but most uh, big store, uh, big retail stores seem to believe that something unique is happening because, as you're right, they started their own um, kind of, in effect, uh, they developed their own investigation and prevention departments, which I thought was amazing, uh, involving, a, you know, pretty uh, sophisticated and expensive uh, procedures. Talk a little bit about what they're doing. Right. Well, these big retailers recognize that maybe uh, petty larcenies are not uh, the, the police's number one priority. Uh, so they want to build these cases, especially targeted at, uh, as we talked about, organized retail theft. And the way they do that is they hire former uh, law enforcement officers and they've, you know, Target has a forensics lab at its near its headquarters in Minnesota. CVS has its own surveillance van. Um, they're trying all these creative new technologies to stop shoplifting. Um, what they measure, they, they measure what's called shrink, which is this all important number that they use. It's the, it's the merchandise that's lost due to shoplifting, due to employee theft, and then due to just their own um, errors. And every year they look at that 
that shrink and say, okay, this number is growing or not. In fact, that number has been pretty static since 2016, uh, according to you know one of the biggest trade groups uh, in retail. So they want to keep that number as low as possible. Um, you know, we don't get to see peer behind the curtain and understand you know the number um, as it relates to shoplifting. We just sort of say, okay, they say shoplifting is getting bad, so shoplifting must be getting bad. Well, talk talk about the role that uh, online retail plays in all of this to the degree that it's happening. Well, um, number one, uh, there is this sort of tension between uh, brick and mortar retail and online retail to begin with, where online retail um, is is looking at brick and mortar and saying, you guys are kind of dinosaurs. <laughs> uh, maybe maybe you should look at uh, your, your business model uh, as one of the reasons your sales are going down. Um, at the end of the other end of that, brick and mortar is looking at these online retail uh, marketplaces, Amazon, Facebook Marketplace, uh, eBay, and, and those places um, make it quite easy now for so-called e-fencing, which is selling um, stolen goods anonymously online. And so I looked actually quite closely uh, at an e-fencing operation um, out of the Diamond District, where one fence was allegedly overseeing a group of 50 boosters coming to him, 30 or so boosters actually, coming to him with these stolen products, and he would just sell them uh, on eBay, and he could do it, you know, with relative anonymity uh, and, and you know, make a, a tidy profit. Well, the pro you know, the profile of that guy is amazing. Again, I recommend our viewers to read it, if just for that, to, to, to get to know this guy. Um, and of course, we, the consumers, play a role because we go to eBay and we buy perfectly good, pristine stuff or really cheap. And of course, we should know that there might be something wrong with that. But the interesting thing about your article is that, you know, unwittingly, we also participate in, in, in this ring because there's things that we buy that that we have no idea are purloined or that have components that are that are stolen. Give us an example of that. Well, sure. You know, when we buy on Amazon, we're not necessarily buying directly from the company Amazon. There are all sorts mm -hmm. of third party sellers and, and we don't as naturally, you know, I, I don't do a lot of research into, you know, the third party seller that's selling me my, you know, my shampoo at a steeply discounted price. So uh, Amazon, um, for its part, says it's it's really beefing up its measures to make sure their th third party sellers are above board legitimate uh, all third-party sellers in the U.S. now need to pass in-person verification. Um, but you know, brick-and-mortar retailers are saying it's still uh, Amazon still you know is just trading millions and billions in, in stolen goods um, every year and profiting from it. So you know, you know the the example that I'm thinking of is is where you you pointed out that we may be getting a cup of coffee from a, from a truck in the corner. Um, and the, and the beans are stolen, you know? I mean, it goes that that way. But but in any event, let me, Dennis, um, in his article, James uh, wrote that, quote, boosters like to say that shoplifting is the lesser of many evils, better than robbing people on the street or in the subway station. And then he quotes one particular booster who told them that, quote, it keeps crime down. Um, is that what you believe? Is that what you believe then? Is that what you believe now, that shoplifting is at least the lesser of uh, all evils? Um, well, that's, uh, I guess 
I wouldn't say the lesser of of two e of the evils because uh you know it's it's still an evil it's still a crime uh you know that's it's hard to say it's less you know because in somebody's eyes it could be uh, just as just as much of a crime and and in the law it's a crime you know obviously the law has different levels of crime whether it be misdemeanors um uh, felonies nonviolent violent felonies so um you know it, it is uh pretty low on the totem pole as far as you know that's uh uh national law that uh in all states it's pretty low on the totem pole as far as uh as far as criminal law goes so um but yeah i i know a lot of instances where they would uh where people would uh you know instead of getting a robbery charge where they go up to somebody and and pull a gun on them or something like that they'd rather go to a store or something like that and and do that type of crime because it's less uh instead of robbing a person you feel like you're robbing a corporation which yeah quote unquote has uh money to you know to burn i guess they would say or and it's it's less of a crime in the in the in as far as the penalty wise it's way less than robbing somebody but uh it's uh, i don't know it's hard to say that that uh it's lesser of the of the evils it's still an evil so i can't i can't really agree with that but i do see the uh the validity in kind of the statement i guess you could say and talia what do you think about that argument well i think that you know, as always, I like to look at the um, at at the people that are involved and what the ramifications are for the people that are involved and what's driving them um, to 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 steal from a store to um, to commit these types of crimes. And I think that one of the things that that always comes to me when I'm hearing about the uptick um, in in shoplifting over the last two years. I mean, you know, that the, there's a crime wave and, and people suggest that, you know, bail reform is the reason um, we're letting everybody out. I mean, it's really, it's, it, it, it's such a false narrative. And, um, you know, the main issue here is why are we not providing less barriers to treatment for substance abuse yeah. and mental yeah. illness um, and I, I, the root I, I causes wanna, of poverty? Yeah, uh, I want to get to I want to get to that specifically before before the the end of the uh, uh, of the conversation. But 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 since you bring it up, let, let's talk about the connection of or lack of connection. Um, between the bail reform laws and uh, the uptick, if it exists, in in uh, in boosting and shoplifting, the mayor believes it that there is a connection. Others do. You were quoted in James articles as saying it's absurd. Um, elaborate on that. Why is well, it absurd? In two thousand nineteen, in two thousand nineteen, the new NYPD says. That's the beginning of the shoplifting. That's also, you know, January 1st, 2020. That's when the bail reform laws, there seems to be an overlap. There seems to be an overlap with the nationwide uh, surge that's reported. Bail reform happened in New York in 2020. Um, what else did we have in 2020? COVID, <laughs> right? Um, so all of the sudden, you know, most people that are at the lowest levels of economic prosperity who work in retail or in the restaurants are out of jobs, um, are becoming unhoused, 
Um, so across the nation, if you look at any type of surge um, in crime, you're going to see that. So to say it's bail reform, because it's also happening in New York City, is why I call that assertion absurd. You can't look at anything in a vacuum. Um, I think that it's easy to say that because many people are getting released on petty larcenies or nonviolent crimes, that's why we have this surge. Let's make sure that we give judges an ability to put all these people back in jail um, because that's always been what we've done. Instead of looking at what are the alternatives Mm -hmm. to changing the way things didn't work before. What are the Um, alternatives? What should we be doing that we're not doing? We should be increasing, not 50 beds for mentally ill people, um, but thousands of beds, centers for the people that are unhoused on the street that need to steal socks from Bloomingdale's in order to survive um, because they need to resell them to get whatever it is that they need to self-medicate because they don't have resources in which they can go to the psychiatrist and get a really great plan for their bipolar or their schizophrenia diseases. Um, We need more addiction centers. We need people that get entangled in the system to have no barriers to treatment instead of creating larger and more cumbersome uh, time frames to get them out of Rikers where people are dying. And we all know that the people are dying at Rikers are getting beaten or getting sick um, and getting people better. Right. Like Dennis. Yeah. Well, um, let like, me do Dennis, it's really, you know, we, we only have about a minute and a half left and I want to get to Dennis to ask him, you know, you've turned your life around. What did it for you? Um, and you have a minute. I'm sorry. Many things, many things. Um, I just uh, overall, I, I, the first time I went to Rikers Island, I was 29 years old and um, I grew up with a good family, came from a good household, um, graduated college and everything positive and with my life starting off. So uh, basically, I saw that this was not the time to to let this go on any further. I became sick of it and I didn't want, I didn't want to do it anymore. I believe that uh, that this is the time to, to turn it around and I I didn't want to be that guy anymore, and I basically was gonna not do any everything in my power to not be in that situation again and have to go back to jail and do those type of things. So, uh, and then also my family uh, wanted to be a better person for them, my nieces, my nephew, and uh, but mainly for myself. And I couldn't have done it without the the help okay. of my attorney, my uh, my family, and also with the court system for giving me an opportunity for treatment, which was not easy to get. But when we did get it. Um, I've been taking advantage of it. And, yeah, you know, I just hope that option is there for other people in the future. That's it. Dennis, we're going to have to leave. Thank you all for joining us. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank, Thank you, you so much, so much for Thank having you. us. Thank, Thank you very you. much.